0: So, oh, Jim. Isn't it nice to be back?
1: Hello, Amanda. Yes. Uh, new year, new beginning, new Europe, or at least a new, new relationship <laughs> with Europe.
0: Yeah, sort of new Europe. Yeah. Sunny uplands and all that. Yeah. Actually, it's really good to be back because we've got some really fabulous programmes coming up, haven't we, in this series?
1: We have indeed. Uh, and again, it's always an exciting uh, opportunity to meet so many fascinating guests.
0: Yeah and the great news for Planet Pod listeners is that we've now got a Patreon account so if you like the pod and you want to support us you can just join at patreon.com/theplanetpod and for anyone who joins in January they get the bonus of a beautiful Planet Pod calendar with Jim's fabulous photos in it
1: woohoo <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i think they're beautiful and i know that listeners do too and some of our guests who've had the calendar have been really nice about it so oh, don't delay kind. everyone sign most up kind. today so, Jim, today we are going to be talking about, among other things, Dogger Bank. Do you yeah. know why it's called Dogger Bank?
1: Uh, no, Amanda, you tell me why it's called Dogger <laughs> Bank, because I, I suspect that you, from what you've just said that you do.
0: Well, I'm really fascinated by Dogger. I've always loved the word, and I've loved listening to it in the shipping forecast, obviously, and Dogger Fisher German bite. But Dogger comes from a Dutch word for fishing boat.
1: Ah, okay. So obviously it has a very important connection to fishing.
0: Yeah. And but before it was a a home for um, fishermen, um, it was actually a piece of land. We could have walked in the ice age, we could have walked from the coast of eastern England right across the Dogger Bank, Dogger Land to mainland Europe. Wow.
1: Well, there you are. So this is it. You learn something new all the time when you're doing these podcasts. Isn't it amazing, isn't it?
0: Yeah. So there, something you learn something every day, don't you?
1: And today we'll be talking about...
0: Today we're talking about fish, yeah. obviously, and we're talking about marine habitats, and we're talking particularly um, about Dogger Bank, but by others, so we probably should just get on with it, really. We should,
1: me? yeah, yeah. And
0: I should get around to introducing our guests.
1: Okay, so you've, we've, we've provided enough hooks, uh, we've put some bait on them, and uh, off, off we go.
0: <sighs> oh, that's enough of that, honestly, you really... Mind <laughs> you, there's a very good picture of fishermen in your calendar, isn't there?
1: There are, actually, yes, indeed, yes. With all Circus at 1970, so...
0: He's uh, so very old, everyone.
1: Absolutely. Okay, off we go.
0: Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. And welcome back to our first edition for 2021. And it's fantastic to have all our listeners back. And thanks for sticking with us. Um, today, we are talking about what well, we had to, didn't we? we? We're going to talk about Brexit. But we're not exclusively going to talk about Brexit. We're actually going to talk about the impact of Brexit and the changes in the European legislation and how they will affect our European waters and our own waters and the environmental situation. And I'm really delighted to be joined by two experts in this field, John Condon, who's a lawyer in marine habitats with Client Earth and based in Brussels. So he's there on the sharp end. So, John, hello and welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much, Amanda. A pleasure to be on.
0: And old friend of the podcast, Dr. Tom Appleby, um, associate professor at the University of the West of England and also a trustee of Blue Marine. And thanks to um, Tom, we had some fantastic programs with Blue Marine last year. If any listeners haven't caught them, they should catch up on the PlanetPod website. So, Tom, hello and welcome back.
3: Hello. Thank you so much for having me back.
0: So it's been an interesting 12 months since we last chatted to you, Tom, about Brexit and the impact on um, fishing and the Fisheries Bill. We're out now, it's happened. Give us a little kind of snapshot of what that actually means. Where are we? What's the situation?
3: Well, we are an independent coastal state. So uh, we're we're out of the common fisheries policy. But But as soon as we left, we kind of went straight back into it um, with with Common Fisheries Policy 2.0, which is in the trade agreement that we signed with the EU. But but that that meant there were substantial changes because um, the UK now controls, through its licensing system, it controls all fishing vessels in its waters. So it has a higher degree of control rather than the kind of more blurred system that went on in the EU where, you know, European vessels were licensed by their own countries fishing in our waters and then controlled by a Brussels. So it was quite a complicated arrangement under the EU, whereas now there's a much simpler system in place. Um, but. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I the, knew there'd be a but. <laughs> whereas. The fishing industry were, were were led to believe that there were going to be substantial benefits from them leaving um there's been i think i think i think it's fair to say they've been quite horribly let down by the process um that we aren't repatriating you know our, our complete control of our waters and and we are still um if you look at what is called zonal attachment which was the kind of scientific theory which because fish despite what Jacob Bruce mogg talked about with British
0: They're fish. British fish, Tom. They're British fish. And what's more, they're happy fish, apparently, according to <laughs> Le- Le- Lord well, v. Smogg.
3: Yes, I never realised they were so nationalistic. Um, but the, 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 despite what he said, um, fish don't you know, travel across different borders. So so what happens is you have a... They, the, the scientific theory is something called zonal attachment, which means that you should be getting stocks based around the sort of amount of time that they spend in your waters and and the sort of fertility of your waters and that that kind of thing so but it's basically around the stock which is around your waters over a given period given that they're going to travel back and forwards Um, and that is a probably a better measurement i think than than historic landings which is the basis that they're looking at on because because of climate change fish stocks are moving north so if you're basing it on your historic catches many of which were sort of set out in the 70s and 80s, That that is, that is I know, uh, basing yourself on a kind of scientific world that no longer exists. So there's an inbuilt problem in the way that 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 kind of key works in terms of how fish stocks are managed. And, and that, that's a shame, because I think there was a missed opportunity there of recalibrating access to the stocks as to quite what was there, not what was there, if you see what I mean. So
0: um, and that move north is quite significant, isn't it? because I remember when we talked to your colleagues at Blue Marine they were saying that actually it's a number of miles a year that they're shifting. so it's significant. It isn't just they've gone you know a few feet further you know further up the hump, but they've actually shifted quite a long way or they will be over a period of time shifting quite a long way.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely for sure. I mean you won't find you won't find fishermen who don't believe in climate change. Um, so yeah, it's it, the whole whole different we're getting different species on the south coast you're getting things like mm. sunfish. You know, these sort of weird things that look like a dustbin lid with a shark fin sticky floating around. Oh. You know, we never used to get them when I was a kid. You know, so so things are changing and, and our and our management system is going to be behind the curb and and, and that's a that's a pity because there was a real opportunity in there that was missed. Um the other the other key thing I think so so on that basis, just to go back to the fishermen, they they've they've had a double whammy really because although they have uplift in some quota stocks, that's that that is kind of patchy it depends what you're fishing for as to whether you'll get the uplift i think mackerel is one where we've got a substantial uplift but that's because again the stocks are further north
2: mm-hmm. um, the, um at the expense of the irish fishermen, if i can just put in which is uh, which is my home uh, member state
0: so we've yeah. shifted we've shifted the control of that 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 stock have we because because the um because because they're now are British fish, they're no longer your Irish mackerel, so we can fish them and you can't. Is that what it means, Is it effectively, just in layman's yeah, terms? Es-
3: essentially, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen to those because they may end up being traded with the Norwegians. It's, it's a very complicated system, you know, okay. unless you're literally engaged in it on a day-to-day basis. The way those stocks translate as to who benefits is incredibly complicated. It's almost like a sort of derivatives market on the stock yeah. exchange, you know, it's, it's, it's that sort of complex. But that means that, uh, so some within the industry will benefit Uh, the majority well the inshore fisheries fishermen were expecting us to get control of the six to twelve
0: back which is so that's the amount of nautical miles off the coast yeah
3: absolutely the six to twelve nautical mile limit which under very sort of old historic agreements um, we had pre-existing our membership of the eu we had allowed fishing in our six to twelve in some cases because of six uh, reciprocal arrangements right Um, but we were expecting that to go particularly as it's an area which really does benefit sort of coastal communities so you can see exactly the sort of people who would have voted for brexit would Mm. would be benefiting if they had control right out to the 12 nautical mile limit because it's it's where you can get to in you know easily in a small boat if you start going too far out to sea the the big offshore fisheries you just can't fish them in a small fishing boat it's too dangerous you know um so they were expecting we, we were all expecting to get control out to 12 and that hasn't happened um so uh that means essentially this or, or at least hasn't happened around the, the, the southwest of england uh, and and that's uh that's come as a bit of a surprise and that that means the benefit for the small-scale fishermen is probably quite slight and i don't think the stocks that they're going to be fishing are going to necessarily be the ones where there's a quota uplift and uh, they haven't got access to greater waters on an exclusive basis and they've got this horrendous level of red tape mm. um which you know big companies can appor- uh, afford to employ all the people to 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 sort of fill in the customs forms and 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 have all the sort of environmental uh, the environmental health certificates they need uh, small companies just can't afford that kind of overhead uh and so i think you will see and that is going to hurt the smaller business particularly when you're dealing with with something like fish which 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 um is such a sort of you have to transport it quickly if it's going to be sold fresh on the paris market sort of shellfish but that that is going to be a big problem i think and a lot of those things are kind of at some level they're sort of subsidized by the bigger bigger industries anyway because the fish markets and things don't make too much money out of the small fishermen but they get it out of the bigger fishermen so they're marginal in terms of whether or not under our current system they make economic sense. So it's 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 it they, they I think have been and that's a lot of you know it's fishing's not a particularly big industry but that's a lot of the fishermen who are going to be quite upset by this. Um on the environmental side it's actually relatively good news I think in that um the fisheries bill that we passed through Fisheries Act 2020 that we passed through Parliament gave A lot of if you once you'd sort of deconstructed the sort of process it created, there were some nice warm words with, um, object environmental objectives in, but actually pretty difficult to pin the government down to those objectives, um, uh, uh, and the agreement that we've got with the EU is marginally more binding <laughs> i say so 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 i think we've got some more more environmental sticks but the very good news on the environmental side i think what well, we'll see um is that uh there was this process under the common fisheries policy where the habitats directive which is the the big environmental measure which protects offshore marine protected areas um w- what happened was these areas would get designated and then For all other industries, management measures were brought in pretty much straight away, unless they already were there. Um, But for fishing, uh, management went through this horrendous joint recommendation process, which ping-ponged around all the member states involved. and, And then it would go to the commission, and the commission didn't like it very much, so it would go back to the member states. And there was really no... No incentive for anybody to agree anything, uh, and so you know the, the the offshore the offshore marine protected areas had no protection on them at all. So you're looking at big areas like the Dogger Bank. Uh, now that that ping pong process has sort of falls away, and the minister, the fisheries minister in the UK, now has the same obligations on them. or the fisheries licensing bodies have the same obligations on them that any other industry would have, and so. What the argument that that sort of Blue Marine Foundation and Client Earth and, and others are pressing is that well, you know now now is the time you're going to have to to deal with the Habitats Directive and start enforcing it against fishing and so that could be well we'll see what happens but there's a uh, but that could be a substantial win uh, for the environment of some of these off- offshore areas I mean you know. The Dogger Bank is something like 16,000 square kilometers. It's a big area of, and, and some of these other ones are huge too. And we could be looking at substantial, well, I think we're looking at almost total protection on those for, for from bottom-toed fishing gears on the Dogger. So I think it's, I think that is a, you know, that that is a a
2: significant win. Yeah, because
0: that sounds like an opportunity, John. Is it? I yes. mean, is that is I that mean, a good news story?
2: Yeah, I think firstly, to say these offshore marine protected areas has been just a huge a huge failure in the European Union to to regulate uh, these areas. Um, only a handful of them have actually any sort of meaningful conservation measures to stop destructive fishing, um, and so the Dogger Bank has been in sort of you know a situation since 2008 uh, whereby there's been you know dialogue back and forth and we're still you know all these years later we still have no conservation measures in that bank um and you know the european court of auditors has also released a report uh, a few weeks ago just really I've uh, been scathing almost of of this of the way that this has been dealt with uh, under the european union so
0: i think John, well, why is dogger important i mean most people will only know <coughs> dogger because it appears on the fishing forecast I uh, you know shipping forecast i should imagine you know dogger fisher gem and bite all that sort of stuff why is dogger important and, and why why hasn't it been looked after properly up till now
2: mm. so i think i mean dogger is really i think it's an emblematic uh, marine protected area in the north sea it's it's you know it's a huge sandbank uh, habitat it's the biggest sandbank in uk waters um you know it's just uh Uh, supports so many important marine species, um, harbour porpoise, dolphin, um, and marine habitats. Uh, I think Marine Conservation Society had a report out a few weeks ago saying that the Dogger Bank had the biggest potential uh, to capture carbon out of all of the marine protected areas in the UK. So I think it's absolutely uh, vital that we protect it. Oh, it's also why, quite why would
0: that be? I mean, it's sort of kind of northeast, isn't it? Sort of 60 miles offshore, you know, halfway mm-hmm. up, you know, a bit north of Norfolk, isn't it? Really just here in layman's terms, roughly where is it? So people can visualize. Sort of, is that right? Kind of sort of up, up there. Yeah, so, so, so why is it so important for, for for carbon sequestration?
2: Um the sandbank, the actual habitat itself, uh, the type of habitat um has got enormous uh, capacity to store carbon. Um within
0: the sand or within, within the, the
2: within the actual habitat okay. itself so the, the grid and yeah. the sand and the and the type of uh sub habitats that are in the area certain uh corals and mm-hmm. um anemones and uh yes it's uh, different different habitat types um yes so it's in the north sea and what's quite interesting about it is that part of the dogger bank is in the uk a large part of it but also other parts of it are in the european union and uh they're in Germany and the Netherlands and and Denmark. So we're going to have a situation whereby part of the Dogger Bank is going to be governed by UK law and UK conservation measures, and the other part of it will be will stay under the EU and and the Common Fisheries uh, Policy. So it'll be very interesting to see how the two different areas progress and to compare them uh, and sort of measure the rate, the comparative success of each of the uh, regimes.
0: Tom is smiling. Um, will that work? Tom, I mean, is that likely to work, having, you know, those two separate regulatory um, regimes side by side?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, what you've got is at the moment, European, Okay, we've left the European Union, but the words are interpreted by the same words, you know. So uh, the anything that happens in the UK will get picked up by By lawyers in the European Union, saying, "Well, look, you know, okay, we're we're no longer bound by each other's decisions, but but actually we are." We, we we have to we, ha- we this is persuasive in terms of those jurisdictions. So in the same way that the common law works, you know, occasionally I still find myself picking up. You know, if you can't find a case in in England, you might go to Canada or Australia. So so it'll it'll have that kind of persuasive nature in, in the way the court system works. And also there's kind of the level playing field things and in in in, in, uh, in European you know in, in the trade agreement that we have to we I, we don't want to be seen to be cutting our environmental standards. Uh, in order to benefit some, somehow to give the UK a disproportionate benefit. So we're going to have some sort of harmonisation at that greater level as well. But I think with this particular case, I think it will just be uh, anything happening here will be persuasive and vice versa. Um, mm. So the Germans are a bit further ahead than we are on protection of their bit of the, you know, some of their uh, marine protected areas. So we, we're sort of saying, well, Look what they're doing. They've got exactly the same science. It's the same science as well that's backing it up. It's the same science that, that, that says that you should protect, be protecting this kind of sandbank. And so anything that's based on scientific evidence that's used there should be having a similar effect in the UK. So mm. I, I think I think, perhaps a simplification of our, pro- of our process may actually have knock-on consequences for the European Union as well. Um, Particularly because the Dogger is connected to all those other countries. Uh,
0: yeah, it's a kind of a central meeting point, isn't it? Yeah. John, Client Earth have been campaigning around Dogger and other marine protected areas for some time, haven't haven't they? And so, would you see this mm-hmm. as a this is, I guess, good news from your point of view, and possibly sets a precedent for other places as well? Or
2: yes, I, I'm hoping it's it's good news. Um, what, what we've seen recently in the Dogger Bank is that the UK's marine management organisation has put out a call to evidence. And one of the things that they're considering doing is banning um, fishing with bottom-contacting gear in all of the UK sites, uh, and that's that's a far cry from what we've seen being proposed for um, the, the German and the Dutch sites, which would, I mean, really allow fishing in almost all of the all of the area, um, very minimal uh, conservation measures, that, which aren't really going to go anywhere towards uh, protecting that sandbank
0: habitat. And that's when you fish with those big trawler nets, sort of literally scooping stuff off the bottom of the of the sea, and you get everything. It's it's indiscriminate. <laughs> yeah. yeah? Yes, is that right? It's,
2: yes. It's the huge. Uh, well, it depends on the type of fishing kit, But one of them is the huge, large uh, beam trawler, which yes, just scrapes, scrapes the bottom of the seabed. Uh, you know, rips up, uh, rips up the seabed and you know, catches everything that's everything that's that's there, um, and it's hugely yeah, hugely detrimental to the. Um, to the mm. conservation of the It's 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 basically been flagged bottom trawling as, as the most destructive fishing activity in terms of marine conservation. So there's a huge push to try and eliminate it, particularly in in marine protected areas, which you know they're they're supposed to protect the marine environment. That's what they're <laughs> there for. Kind um, of clue in
0: the name there really isn't it? Yeah,
2: exactly. And it just it's just totally um contradictory and hypocritical to to see these sort of uh, things happening in marine protected areas there's, there's quite an interesting sort of
3: um thing that's happened as well in terms of gear choice uh in in uk waters this is one of the first things the british government did was banned electric pulse trawling which is a kind of lighter version of a beam trawl and they put lighter gear down but with electric sort of charges and they sort on of the stun
0: bottom. the fish don't they and they the, this
3: yeah. fish jump up and then get caught in the nets mm. um and <laughs> and that was taking place on an experimental basis in uh, in 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 offshore sacs and and pretty much you know the southern half of the north sea um and uh the the european union actually after a, a sort of environmental campaign the european union are meant to bring bringing a ban in, in the, towards the middle of this year and britain has banned it straight away so we're not which will affect significantly the Dutch vessels because a lot of Dutch vessels are using this um, it's quite controversial because it actually means you have lighter gear so you have less direct impact on the seabed um, mm. but it had this me- me- meant that you could actually fish in slightly in the, you could fish using bean trawls in a slightly broader area because you weren't having to worry so much about what you're going to hit on the seabed so um, it, it, it but it was a Whatever it was, it should never have been taking place in in uh, in um, uh, marine protected areas because we didn't know how efficient it was, so they shouldn't have allowed it in there in the first place. so uh, so it, you know it's a, it's, it, 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 it is an attempt you, you can see why the British government have done it um, but it's it is an attempt for them to do the right thing.
0: So this is a, this feels a bit more like a good news story than perhaps some people would have thought. John, is that right? Because I mean, I know that colleagues of yours at Client Earth were quite quite anxious about the our uh, exit from the European Union and that what that would do to some of the environmental protection that's been offered under under membership.
2: Yeah, so I think I think it depends on on what particular area you're talking about. I think for offshore marine protected areas, that's uh, you know, there is an opportunity. Hopefully, depending on you know depending on what measures are actually put in place for the dogger bank and we've also seen that last year there was a, a benyan review which you know is looking at the possibility of introducing highly protected marine areas um which would be much more str- restrictive to the type of fishing that could take place in them and would also look to uh look to try and identify particular habitats uh, that are particularly good at storing carbon these sort of blue carbon habitats which mm. is you know certainly a very interesting uh, innovation and uh, you know it's got huge potential for 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 improvement but i think there are there i mean on one side there are the you know the really really good opportunities but there are, are also risks um so where are
0: the, the risks where are the things we should be looking out for
2: um well i think uh, if we're talking about the fisheries act um if we can talk about the fisheries act um i think um one of the big alarm bells that we've seen is there is no legal commitment to um, to sustain at, uh, to fish at sustainable levels under the new act, which was a big divergence from the, the European Union's common fisheries policy. That is sort of the headline uh, feature of that law, that by 2020, all stocks in the EU will be fished sustainably. And it is a legally binding commitment. Now, it hasn't happened for all stocks. And, you know, Grinders is trying to look at different legal avenues to enforce that obligation. But the fact that it's there uh, is important. Um, and I think that the fact that it's, it hasn't been replicated into the, into the UK Fisheries Act is... Um,
0: and what yeah, does that actually mean around. in reality for the for, for the marine environment? Does that mean that people could go out and overfish massively a particular stock if they could find it? or in a UK coastal waters with no form of, of of comeback. Um
2: well I think the the commitment is to uh, in the objectives um a lot of so the, the the objectives that uh are sort of underpinning the UK Fisheries Act uh talks about sustainability and and taking an ecosystem approach to fisheries. Um so there is, you know, there is an expectation under the Fisheries Act that there will be uh, legislation to uh, reduce overfishing. But um, the problem is, without that legally binding target, um, there's just nothing really to hold the government's uh, feet to the to the fire.
3: No, I, I, and I, I think this this brings in a couple of concerns as well, in that um, the, the the government. Have been making noises about uh, sort of limiting the rights for judicial review, and so you know there. We, if you look at say the the public trust doctrine, that that that, that the bit where we we've admitted in 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 the fisheries bill that the, or we admitted as part of the fisheries bill that the, the the UK fishery belonged to the crown on behalf of the public. So you could probably imply some duties in there that 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 they had to manage it sustainably, but but. Once you get to the judicial review phase, which is the kind of way we would, we would take, legally take the government to account, there have been noises that, that they want to, to limit that power. And that would be quite concerning. Because when we were in the European Union, there was always this backstop of, of the European Commission taking sanctions against the member state, and that's kind of fallen away. Um, and the other thing is that is that the government could um, could now alter the Habitat's regulations themselves uh if a big case came along, you know, which again they couldn't really have done when we were a member of the European Union. So the the government have sort of taken the UK has taken a back back a lot of power, but that means they can also fiddle around with it if we start getting into areas where they're you know legally compromised. And that's a that's a worry. There is this Office of Environmental Protection, um, which has been set up, which, which which may go some way to doing that. But then I, I'm always a bit suspicious of a an office which is funded by the very government department it's seeking to investigate. I can't see that. That is just not...
0: <laughs> it doesn't not not as not, much scrutiny, though, yeah. know, is it? <laughs> it's
3: just... I just... I just and, and also, as any applies to England. So, I mean, you know, I'll yeah. watch that space, and, and I'm sure it'll be staffed by people trying to do the right thing, but there's a fundamental legal problem in the way that's constituted. Um, there
0: is, there is. I mean... I, it, John at Client Earth, you know, you have built your 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 reputation quite rightly on Taking um, action for for, for for the for the planet for the Earth, where action needed to be taken, holding governments of all all colours to account across the world. So, what do you feel are the sort of real challenges that you face uh, or that we face in in making sure that this this exit from the EU is not going to be hugely damaging to the UK environment in all, not just the marine environment but generally, but specifically, I guess marine environment as that's um, of area of specialism.
2: Yeah, I think I think this question of enforcement is just a is just a huge 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 issue um, one of the things client earth like what what one of the things that we do spend a lot of time is 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 working with the european commission as the sort of independent uh, enforcement body that all of the national governments like to blame uh, and dislike but <laughs> um, but you know it has proper enforcement powers it is relatively independent of the member states it has a facility for uh, ngos like client earth to lodge legal complaints uh, with with the european commission and for the commission to you know look at that evidence we provide and and launch uh, what's called enforcement action or, or infringement proceedings and we have been able to do that uh, with the european commission um i've seen the european commission take action against the uk uh the uk government so i mean it's a huge question mark over to what extent uh this new uh, office for environmental protection Will have you know the capacity, the independence, the resources uh, to do that, um, and I think you know without 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 having proper enforcement, environmental law is is just really not is just really not effective. So that's that is a that is a major concern, and we would like to see see the OP have, have as many powers as possible.
3: I think also I think I think it's it's an interesting thing because on the one hand you can say it's oh, it's the Brexiteers wanting to you know. Uh, wanting to wanting the power, wanting the cake, and not and eating it and all that kind of stuff. But but I think there's something here about it's not just this isn't just a sort of this isn't just an ideological thing. I think somewhere, you know, and I hate to say, I think somewhere in the civil service, I think civil servants prefer to have. We all would prefer to have powers and not duties. And yet, in the case if we you know go back to fishing, you really don't want that capacity at all. If you look at the really well managed fisheries around the world, you know. Um, sort of the Alaska a fishery, or something like that, way, where, where basically you have a you have or the, uh, the Australian fisheries model where, where what you have is is independent science set in a cap, and you cannot go any further than that. And and there's a reason you don't want discretion in that area is that as soon as you sort of blink the politics come crowding in and it's an incredibly complicated political space because you're trying to balance up different types of people within the industry, the Mm -hmm. conservationists and everyone else. It's a horrendous nightmare for politicians trying to sit there, balancing up all of those industries and and bound ultimately to be letting down one of them is going to be angry with them. It's far better to sort of leave it to some black box formula to deal with because it really is too complicated to deal with politically. Mm So Mm -hmm. actually putting a duty in that context is much much better for them but they they just seem loath to and it's it's a sort of thing that's an absolute feature of modern legislation they seem loath to go that stage of putting a duty on themselves and i think it's a i think it's a massively wasted opportunity
0: it's a dereliction of duty really isn't it as a minister that you're not you're not prepared to do that and the fishing the whole fishing debate was so I don't know. It, it was so charged, wasn't it, throughout that this, you know, the, the the idea that we were protecting little, you know, little fishing enterprises and you know independent fishermen off the coast of Cornwall who were finally able to catch what they needed to and and make a living. And actually, as you say, they've been massively let down. Um, half of the problem probably was that. They weren't, you know, they could have done more fishing, but we sold, you know, lots of those licenses to the big trawlers anyway. So, so we'd actually already prevented those fishermen from, from doing what they wanted to do as part of the European Union or membership of the European Union. And now they can't sell their fish because they can't, as you say, get through the red tape. And we're having to subsidize, you know, fishermen to, to because the stocks are going off. So, so it doesn't feel like anyone's really won, and yet we were blinded by this kind of very emotional you know, rhetoric about, you know, taking back control of our waters and little fishing boats. And it was a very old fashioned approach to actually something which is actually quite complex and serious and and interdependent, you know, with with our immediate neighbours. And and I worry that we've, you know, we've won this alleged victory. And actually, as you've said, we haven't really won anything very much. And we've more importantly, put many fish stocks at risk of, of significant overfishing because the management of the fish stocks is absolutely key isn't it in sustainability and environmental terms we have to be sure that we are not overfishing and damaging those stocks
3: yeah i mean there is still going to be a process to do that under international negotiations and so you know that doesn't change massively i think you know i think because we're not managing the stocks for the right stocks in the right place that's a problem you know the zonal attachment thing but i think you know that large scale stuff is it's going to be fine. It's not going to be enlightened. We've got this facility in, in the fisheries bill to do fisheries management plans, which is right. potentially a good thing, you know, starting to look ahead, look at what stocks we should be fishing. My, my problem on that is that when you sort of try and do a, an, an over the horizon thing, so well, perhaps we should be going for more, you know, the pelagic fish, the fish that live in the water column rather than the fish that live on the seabed, you know, herring or something, you know, which which is traditionally used to live in British waters. Um, uh, my, my problem is that 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 isn't going to be as easy to do because we've got all these historic you know we've got rights that we've given to to other uh, european nations to fish in our waters so it's going to be you know there's going to be more of an argument because they're going to be based on existing stocks so it's going to be harder to do things that are innovative i think mm. but not impossible um and there are requirements in there to to adhere to best scientific advice so i think I think you know there is scope. It isn't. It isn't all doom and gloom. I think it is really tough on the small scale, though. And I think mm. I think that's that's terrible political tragedy for them because I think you know those coastal communities, you know, w- w- which is a social, really rather than environmental problem, they have been let down by this. There's absolutely no question. And the ones are the, the sad thing is the ones I've spoken to, the fishermen I've spoken to, have gone straight from sort of thinking the world's going to you know hope to mm. resignation. Mm. Without going through any sort of anger phase, uh, you know. If, <laughs> and and that's, that's a pity. You no, know, I think. That, well, <laughs> we could I with a bit think, Yeah, well, you could have done. You could have done with a bit more sort of like you know, thump thumping. but, yeah. but,
0: but it's, and it's they've had a terrible time anyway, haven't they, Tom? Because I remember when we talked to Blue Marine over the summer. I mean, the the fact that people couldn't export to Europe because of the lockdown, because of the impact of COVID, and and those small local fishermen were trying very hard to build new markets within the UK for fish that we. Quite frankly, didn't really want to eat. You know, the vast majority of the British population eats a bit of cod and then a lot of prawns that we ship in from 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 somewhere else. So, so there wasn't, a, you know, we don't have a we don't have that natural relationship with our own fish stock anyway. So those fishermen have really suffered in the last twelve months because of the pandemic and not being able to get their their stock to market.
3: Yeah, it's been really tough. It's been really tough. And 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 so what this, I mean, what Brexit then hasn't done is actually remedied the social dysfunction that it was designed to to sort of certainly in the fishing case. I mean, I don't mm. I can't speak for the Northeast of England and and, and the other other areas which have have, have mm. probably not done so well, have been left behind by our integration with the European Union uh, 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 and, and, and have, you know, have felt they needed, you know, quite, you know, quite rightly I think probably felt that they had to that they had to try something different because the current system mm. wasn't working. But mm. it's almost like, you know, there's that resignation, which I think is really sad.
0: Yeah, we want more angry fishermen. John, what do you feel from from your perspective, sitting in Brussels? What's the what's the mood like about how this relationship between us and Brussels will develop around things like marine protection areas? Because this isn't the only one we want. I mean, we you know Blue Marine are hoping for thirty by thirty, aren't they? Thirty percent of waters under MPAs by twenty thirty. So, do you feel there's a, a a willingness to talk about that bigger bigger conservation picture?
2: Um. Well, yeah, in Europe at the moment, there's a huge, this huge emphasis on big picture um, marine biodiversity at the moment. The EU just published its biodiversity strategy for 2030 uh, last year. And there are some, fairly, some very ambitious uh, plans for the marine environment. You know, and one of those is the, is the 30 by 30, that is to have 30% of European seas uh, protected by 2030. Ten um, percent of those were going to be designated as strictly protected areas. That hasn't been precisely defined yet, so it's not clear whether they will be no take zones, mm-hmm. uh, banning all types of fisheries, or, or what they will. Or what they will be, you know, there's also uh, a possible new law coming in on restoration of uh, the marine environment, uh, you know, possibly. Putting binding targets on on different member states, so there is a there is a huge push. Um, looking outward to coming uh, uh, in, uh, which may take place this year, just to have a to be a global leader on on marine biodiversity. Um, so I think it will be interesting to see how the relationship goes uh, with the UK. I know the UK is also very uh, committed to thirty uh, percent of uh, of the seas protected by by twenty thirty as well. Um, but yeah, I'd be interested to hear Tom's views on, on on UK's sort of global leadership on, on marine conservation.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, actually. It, I mean, there's a couple of things. Firstly, I think that I was really pleased at the last minute that the UK seems, seems to have in inside Horizon 2020 in the scientific framework and scientific work, because, you know, many of the UK institutions are among the European and world leaders in, in marine biodiversity, and marine conservation. So we are still going to have a thought leadership role, even if we don't necessarily have a political leadership role inside the EU. Um, when you look at things like the Treaty on Biodiversity, the BBNJ, the, the international uh, treaty that's going through the Biodiversity Bill National Jurisdiction, um, the European Union had a rather complicated role here because, because of the presence of the particularly the spanish distance water fleet which is very close to 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 how this whole thing works and the uk position was sort of compromised slightly because we've got some huge overseas territories which border onto some of the high seas uh, and our position we we don't really have a distant water fleet and so we can be slightly more aggressive or more aggressive in terms of conservation than than and I think the EU was sort of hobbled by the Common Fisheries Policy, uh, which which is it's it is a problem inside the EU. There's no question that that is sort of over. <laughs> I I heard somebody tell me once, you know, they should just relegate the common fisheries policy down to some sort of corner of DG regional affairs. (laughs) Not have it it sitting there front and centre with its own ministry, you know, which eventually it's got its own DG, you know, because it... uh, But maybe
0: they're, in the light of all this, maybe they'll they'll revamp and and revisit the fisheries policy. And maybe this is an opportunity for the EU to actually just, you know, to, to, to think a bit bolder.
3: Well, if you think about it, if you think about it, The common fisheries policy probably cost the EU UK membership. I mean, I know the fishermen were let down, Mm. but it probably did. You know, if there was one iconic story that the Brexiteer kind of, you know could could flag themselves too it was fishing and 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 it's and- so
0: ironic when it's something like not point not 2% of the uk economy i mean if we 4. look at what's happened around financial services you know which is something like 126 or billion pounds and fishing is just hundred odd million I mean there's just no comparison but but that wasn't the voice that we heard in the debate wasn't it we didn't see the we didn't see the besuited, besuited men marching out of Canary Wharf with their flags saying keep us in the EU did we we just saw the flucky little fish boats going up the Thames led by Nigel Farage yeah, so it yeah. was emotion it was emotion over reason all the way through
3: and, and but interestingly enough that has played out inside the EU too and that DG Mari I think is is too powerful mm. actually but for given the size it is, given the important, relative mm. importance to the member states, it's too powerful, and and actually, you know, it, it it's messed up EU membership from UK membership from start to finish. And and okay, you know, there are a whole load of other issues, but you're only talking about a small percentage shift in the population, mm.
0: which would have kept mm.
3: us in. So so I th- I would hope some humility in there inside the EU institutions, as far as it has been a disaster for them. This yeah uh, yeah, and, and in terms of the UK's position, well. You know, we we do have we can step out of that. We we, but but ultimately these things are done in in, in international negotiations by being part of a block, and the UK will become a very small player in amongst yeah. Uh, yeah. the kind of big trade blocks, and and so our voice is is is, is I, I think going to be be diminished.
2: If I can just uh, jump in on the yes on the EU and the common fisheries policy. Um, yeah, I think I mean, I wouldn't be inclined to suggest we really throw it in the scrap heap straight away. There have been some good aspects under the laws. And um, I think a big problem of it has been, you know, the implementation of it, whether you know one aspect is DG Mare perhaps having large influence over fisheries uh policy when the the DG environment uh perhaps should have had more say in terms of being able to enforce environmental laws when they overlap with with fishing activity. Um and I think there's just been a lot of uh, poor implementation uh, uh, by, them, uh, by the different mm. countries and sort of an unwillingness to properly engage with the common fisheries policy. But um, yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how the UK, how they progress with, with their fishing policy, you know, post-Brexit.
0: I think it's a watch this space, isn't it, really, on this one? And we might have to come back in six months' time or 12 months' time and see what's happened because, you know, there's it, it, this is largely the unknown. But, but, but do you have... You know, we, we we should, I guess, pull it to a close a bit. But John, would you have a kind of hope for the future or or a kind of call out for the future? Is what do you think, you know, where you think we're going to be in 12 months time? I mean, what what should we be looking for or looking to do in terms of, of, of making our voices heard? Yeah.
2: Um. I mean, I, I, I'll try and be, try and be optimistic, but
0: um, <laughs> yeah, please I, I, do. It's January.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is January. We are in the middle of a, of a global pandemic, so uh, yes, I think I think I owe that. Um, I, I I I would like to see a lot of movement on on positive movement on marine conservation. We have seen we have seen you know a lot of policy promises about uh, particularly having better marine protected areas. So I think for, for, to bring a, a conversation back to the Dogger Bank, we know that the UK is. Has put out a call for evidence and you know one of the things that they're looking at doing is, is closing that site to to bottom uh fishing with bottom contacting gear so in 12 months it would just be it'd be really good to see if there have been proper measures in that site and we know they're going to protect that site and that will have a you know hopefully that will embarrass the EU then and, and the EU's member states when they see the UK has you know is, is sort of living up to its word on on marine conservation so that's that's one of the things I would, I would really love to see fingers crossed
3: that's
0: a hopeful note tom
3: well funnily enough it's funny john's talked about something that the 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 uk can do and and i'll 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 return the favor and 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 i think that i would really like to see the work actually that client earth is doing in terms of fruition on maximum sustainable yield this is the the legal cap on fishing which is in the common fisheries policy if that if we can actually get the if, if we can get Somewhere in the, the European jurisdictions, <laughs> or whatever we call ourselves now in, in, now that the UK has left, somebody actually saying, no, there is a legally binding obligation to stick to the science. That would radically change things because it's there on paper in the common fisheries policy. If that, can, if that can be enforced over the next 12 months, that would be amazing.
2: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Well, those are two hopeful notes for the future. Thank you both so much. I mean, I think probably what we need is we probably need to get the government ministers in to have a little chat with you because to explain to them what they've signed up to in terms of the fisheries policy in the bill and what it actually means. But thank you for sharing that. That's been absolutely fascinating. And. And I suspect we'll have to have you back to talk about this in more detail as time progresses. So Tom and John, thank you both so much for being part of Planet Pod and thank you for being our guests today. It's been great to see you. Um, Thank you to our listeners too, for listening to the pod and to my producer, Jim Haywood. Um, The great and exciting news is that we now have a Patreon account, so you can support Planet Pod if you want to Um, just visit patreon.com slash the Planet Pod, where you can sign up and you get lots of bonus material and the fabulous aforementioned calendar. Um, Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please rate us on the app because it's really good for, for our ratings and general profile. And a, and a final thanks to my guest, John. Thank you and goodbye. And Tom, thank, thank you, you and goodbye.
3: Thank you.
0: Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.